0: I came from a beautiful neighborhood, had a beautiful life. I went to sleep because September 7th was the first day of my high school year. I was going to be a senior.
1: At 22 I was set to start college. I woke
0: up and my life was never the same again.
1: Cops came out with guns drawn and I never saw freedom ever ever since after that. It's like
0: Roach Motel, once you get in, you're not getting out. This. Is Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom. Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom. Today I'm extremely pleased and honored to have someone I consider to be, uh, I guess, for lack of a better word, innocence royalty, uh, Michael Morton. Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jason. It's good to be here. So Michael is an extraordinary person in so many ways. His case is extraordinary. His uh, life uh, post-exoneration is extraordinary. I didn't know him before this all happened, because that's a long, long time ago. But uh, what he's been able to accomplish, uh, both inside prison and outside, is um, the stuff of legend. But let's go back, Michael. Um, You served 24 years and seven months to the day in Texas Penitentiary for a crime you didn't commit.
1: The day that I walked in the penitentiary was on March 4th. The day that I walked out was October 4th.
0: So you were in prison 24-7. Yeah, (laughs) that's— For 24 years and seven months. But first, I just want to give the audience a sense of, you know, what kind of a person you were before all this stuff happened.
1: I like to say that uh, I was the t- statistical midpoint in the American demographic in that um, I was incredibly average. I went to uh, SFA, Stephen F. Austin State University in Nacogdoches, since where I met my future wife. Right. And Christine. I, yes, I met Christine there. Um, it began, as um, some romances do, you see somebody across the room, you know, and uh, it catches your eye or she does in my case, uh, make a long story short, the whole deal. Married, had a child, thinking about getting another child on the way here. Uh, you know, Mortgage, suburbia, cars, credit cards, all that stuff. Sounds it's pretty the, good. It's the average. And that's why I call myself the <clears throat> statistical midpoint in the American demographic, because there was nothing unusual about my life. We had moved into our second home. We'd sold our first, made a nice little piece of that. We were doing well and moving up that was the idea and um, it was my 32nd birthday and the next day when I went to pick up my son from the sitters which was part of my routine the babysitter looked at me in a very odd way and she what are you doing here and I she said that my son wasn't there that um, my wife hadn't brought him in which was very unusual for our routine every family has a rhythm that they live in and the fact that I had not received any phone call from my wife. She hadn't brought him to the sitters. It was very bizarre. So I just snatched the sitters' phone off the wall and called home. And to my surprise, a man answered and identified himself as the sheriff. And he wouldn't tell me anything except I needed to come home right away. Oof. And,
0: uh... Your heart is now going a million miles a minute.
1: Yeah, um, I, I literally ran to my truck and... It's about a five-minute drive home from there. And five minutes doesn't sound much time. I mean, it, even though you're breaking the speed limit and running stop signs to get home because the sheriff just answered, you're, you know, you're running a mental inventory. What in the world could have happened? And uh, you, know, you run through, well, okay, could have been a fire. Could have been a burglary. The wife may have been attacked. Could be rape. And oh my God! could be murder too, and I knew something had happened to my wife and as I literally slid up to my my house, there were police cars all around the house, a very large yellow crime scene ribbon had been wrapped all the way around the yard and um, saw a couple of cops in the front yard, uniform cops uh, and there were neighbors you know people I knew were on the sidewalks across the street in little clusters. Um, and as I slid up the curb, you know, they all took note of me. It's it almost a peripheral awareness. You know, you, you're focused on, my, oh, my God, what's here happening at my house. But you also see the things going on around you or you sense them. And I ducked under the crime scene ribbon. And I was heading to the front door when the police stopped me because they didn't know who I was. And the the sheriff showed up very quickly when they, you know, stopped me out in the front yard. And he identified himself and he asked me to identify myself but the first words out of my uh, mouth were actually about my son and the sheriff told me that he was fine he was at a neighbor's house a few doors down and when I asked about my wife he informed me in an almost matter-of-fact fashion that she was dead and because the house appeared to look intact it hadn't been burned I asked if it was murder and he said it was yes
0: so when did you start to get the sense that they felt that you were a suspect?
1: Initially, I did not. Um, <clears throat> they were asking some very odd questions, and I was intellectualizing. Um, okay, they have to ask these rather pointed, uncomfortable questions because they're trying to piece everything together. Then, you know, they have to eliminate me as a suspect. I get that. You know, after all, I've watched TV. Right. I know how this works. Sure. Um, TV and reality don't always mesh. But I got that. Um, It wasn't until a few days later when I was uh, interviewed by the police again and again that I was quite frustrated with their line of questioning. And I was also frustrated with what I perceived to be their inability or uh, unwillingness to to do this investigation properly and professionally. And in a moment of frustration, I volunteered for a polygraph test. I said, look, if I take a polygraph test, will you believe me? And they lit up like very, very happy children. And um, very shortly after that is when one of my neighbors, an attorney, suggested that I retain counsel. That I, He had a couple friends who were very good criminal defense attorneys, uh, Bill White and Bill Allison in Austin, Texas. And I impl- went to see them. And uh, it was shortly before that that everything went south. Uh, they were gunning for me that for whatever reason they looked around the crime scene before any interviews, before any lab tests, before a single thing had happened as far as in an investigative sense they decided that I was the guy I had done it so ultimately um, how long was it before you were arrested and charged it was about six weeks Um, pardon me Six weeks after uh, my wife's death, um, I was home with my son, just the two of us. Uh, in fact, we were making, as much as he could help, we are making dinner. And we are in the kitchen, and there's a knock at the door. And uh, I picked up my son because, you know, leave him in the kitchen with all the, you know, hot water boiling, all that kind of stuff that's hot. went to answer the door, and to my utter shock, it was the sheriff and a number of deputies there to arrest me. And I was flabbergasted. I, I did not expect them to do this. And um, as bad as being arrested is, the worst part was having my son torn up from my arms because I tried to think about what was he going through. I've you know Basically, I got him there on my hip, and they're wanting to handcuff me. And the last time my son had seen the police it had been a really bad day. It's the day his mother's killed. And
0: worst he, day imaginable, yeah, for a kid.
1: And suddenly the police were back. And he, he I I could feel him, he wrapped his legs around my waist and he didn't want to let go. But they you know, they peeled him loose. I was trying to comfort him and he was calling for me and that was the worst part. As bad as being arrested is, it's much worse um, seeing what I was doing to my son. Because any 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 parent knows that before you have a child, you are the center of your own universe. Sure. And then after you have that child, your perspective changes.
0: Now comes the trial. So you're now in this um, bizarre dream nightmare world of the criminal justice system sort of working exactly the way it's not supposed to. And this, uh, these prosecutors are up there painting you as a murderer and
1: uh, saying all sorts of... Being on trial for murder, um, it's not what you think. You know, most everybody has their perspective of the way these things go because of TV and movies and books. You read about it, you think you know about it. But it's a completely um, separate world. It's a different universe. It's a subculture you're not familiar with. Uh, They have their own language and they have customs and they have rituals that you don't know anything about. And the only thing you can do is listen to your attorneys. I mean, they're supposed to know what's going on. They've done it before. They know the way the system works. And you're torn between taking their advice from these experts you've hired as opposed to the way you feel about what you should do. And... When you're torn like that between those two worlds, between what you think and what you feel, you, it's always a battle of what's in control. I mean, is it your head or is it your heart? Well, give, a, give an example of that. Okay. Um, one of the purely fabricated issues in my trial was that the prosecutor came up with this idea that because there was a a semen stain on our bed, you know, on the sheets— That in his mind, that meant that I had masturbated with my wife's dead hand. Wow. Yeah, and I didn't know where that came from. And you, you want to jump up and scream and you know deny it, maybe call him names or just, you know, that kind of insult. You almost want to jump on somebody. And yet, you know that this is a sort of a binary adversarial kind of, okay, you'll get your turn. Sit down, you know, be cool. Don't make the jury think you're some kind of nut. And we, you know, we'll clean this up. And so that's the kind of thing that you're torn between is you know that you should take your attorney's advice because of the, the, the stuff that's at stake here, your very life. And yet, you have this visceral response to some of these accusations that are just baloney. You know, wh- wh- where'd this come from?
0: Um, let's talk for a second about the exculpatory evidence that was withheld.
1: Yeah, one of the great things that the Innocence Project does is their DNA exonerations. But you never know what a DNA test is going to reveal till you run the DNA test. And so before the tests were actually done, they had a parallel legal attack on my case. And one of them was a Texas Open Records Act, which is very, very similar to the Freedom of Information Act at the federal level, And so we actually got access to the prosecutor and the sheriff's files from 86 and 87. And at this time, you know, we're in the 21st century, looking back and this is the appellate thing. And in those files, we found out that despite the request by my attorneys and a direct order from the judge, the prosecution and the sheriff's department suppressed several key pieces of evidence that would have pointed to my innocence and would have helped immensely at our trial. And this, this is, my attorneys were begging for this kind of stuff, but they had no mechanism to get to it because the prosecutor was between us and the evidence. And one of the things was a check that had been cashed after my wife's death, an instance of her credit card being uh, used supposedly down in San Antonio a few days after her death. And, and the biggie was this um, transcript of a phone call. My son, unbeknownst to me, had apparently witnessed my wife's murder. Um, Remember now, he was three at the time, and everybody, I mean, even the police were concerned about my son, and in the time between uh, my wife's murder and my incarceration, I had taken him to several child psychologists, and um, some he got along with, some he didn't, but the gist of it all was that... They all told me, look, he, he is obviously suffering from what you might call separation anxiety because his mother's gone, but we don't believe that he has witnessed anything horrible or, more importantly, nothing horribly been done to him. And so that was a bit of relief, but relief, rather. Um, however, unbeknownst to me, he had told my mother-in-law, his grandmother, that he, he mentioned a lot of things about my wife being murdered. To her, And he mentioned um, some very physical, distinct things about the crime scene that police had withheld from the media that only they knew, which is part of procedure because if somebody wants to come up and confess, they have to kind of prove that they did it. Or they also want to be able to prove or catch somebody who's being interrogated. So, you know, here's this transcript of my son's admissions about witnessing my wife's murder, which would have been huge because he talked about – a man with a big mustache and red gloves and how he hit mommy. And thank goodness my mother-in-law had asked him where I was. You know, was daddy there? And my son very distinctly said no. And so that would have been a wild, wonderful thing to have at trial.
0: Well, it would have led to your exoneration. So the jury is is sequestered. Um, The the closing arguments have been done. The jury goes out. How long were they out for?
1: I think it was about ninety minutes, but that doesn't mean they deliberated for ninety minutes because they also had lunch. So it could have been forty-five minutes. Yeah, it could have been thirty, yeah, depending on how fast you eat. So they didn't deliberate very long. Not at all. very long at all. There wasn't. Um, how long was the trial? It was uh, ten days, two weeks. Right. So they were ready to go home. Oh, yeah. And, and while actually they, they weren't sequestered, they are instructed, as in all criminal cases, that you cannot talk to anybody about this. Don't watch TV. Don't read newspapers. Don't go to the Internet, you know, even though there wasn't an Internet back then for most of us. And so it was a, a really quick thing. They were back in no time, and you got to stand up when they read the verdict. And in my mind, anyway, I was expecting a not guilty verdict. Because everything that they brought forward, for the most part, had been emotional pleas without any hard data, no, no irrefutable science. It was it, we we had countered everything they threw out there. It was purely circumstantial. Yes, that courtroom. Um, there was standing room only, and here's the weird thing: when you're in these really um, intense, emotional, weighty situations, you're focused on the judge and the jury. And for just a moment, you're not aware of the closest people to you being right behind you. You're not aware that there are a line of cops very nearby ready to seize you. You're not aware of the sounds. You're not aware of the temperature. You're very, very focused on the people that are going to decide your fate for the rest of your life right here and right now. And I had more than an expectation of being found not guilty. And when they said guilty, it knocked the wind out of me. And I, I, I didn't collapse on the ground, but my knees buckled and I sat down in my chair. And it was an involuntary act. If the chair had not been in there, I'd have fallen to the floor. And I did hear the wails of my mother. I think some people were surprised. Some people were glad. Um, it was a it was a real mixed bag, but once the verdict was in, then you become the murderous perv, the boogeyman, the, the the guy there that everybody hates.
0: Is there something that is interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals? If so, then BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who are specialists in issues including depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleeping, trauma, and more. Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. And remember, anything you share is confidential. Now you can get help on your own schedule, at your own pace, and your own time. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions and chat, text with your therapist. If you're not happy with your counselor also, remember this, you can request a new one at any time at no additional charge. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option, and for Wrongful Conviction listeners, you can get 10% off your first month with discount code WRONGFUL. So why not get started today? Go to BetterHelp.com WRONGFUL that's betterhelp.com/wrongful simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor that you'll love betterhelp.com/wrongful anyone who knows me knows I wear glasses all the time it's like a part of my face and the thing is it's so annoying going to a store and trying glasses on and going through that whole process. Warby Parker has solved the problem. I just participated in the home try on program and here's what happened. They sent me the glasses. I tried them on in my office five different pairs. I showed them to my friends I you know looking at other people what do you think this that the other thing I look in the mirror I picked the one that suited me the best and then I sent back the other four and here's the thing. The glasses, you're not going to believe this. They start at $95, including prescription lenses. I mean, that's a small fraction of what I'm used to paying. And the lenses include anti-glare and anti-scratch coatings, which is super important to me for obvious reasons. Anyway, the free home try-on program works like this. You order five pairs of glasses... And you try them on absolutely free for five days. You can show anyone. And then there's no obligation to buy. The shipping is free. It includes a prepaid return shipping label. So head to warbyparker.com slash conviction to take the quiz that comes before and then order your free home try on. And now... Introducing Scout by Warby Parker And Scout is for you people For everyone that wears contact lenses And here's the thing They're comfortable They're breathable And they're affordable They're daily contact lenses They're made from a super moist material That resists drying For lasting hydration and comfort It's everything you want from a contact lens Order a trial pack That includes six days worth of contacts For only five dollars Unreal And then receive five dollars Off your next Warby Parker order Learn more Go to warbyparker.com slash conviction. That's warbyparker.com slash conviction. Try it today. So now you're found guilty and you're sent to Texas prison, right? Is it as bad as it sounds?
1: Prison, um, it's not what you think it is. It's a, it's a subculture It's very insular. It's not like the outside world. And when you get there, I got some great advice while I was in county jail. There was an old guy in county jail before I went down to the penitentiary, and he told me, he said, you'll be okay. You know, you're a grown man. You're 32. You're not going down there at 19. But he said, in the beginning, keep your mouth shut and your eyes open. And I found that to be some of the best advice I ever received. Um, The penitentiary is a violent place. Lots of internal boredom and then absolute horror. And that's kind of what it's like. But after a a while inside, you become desensitized to the violence. I've heard you talk about the noise. Um, Do you remember? Inside, there's a constant din or roar Um, gates are slamming PA systems blaring uh, a lot of people talking at the same time Uh, in the mornings the TVs come on in the day room and late at night they're turned off and in in between they're on different channels and they're on full blast and you're in a concrete and steel room and the sound's bouncing off and people are slamming dominoes on metal tables and yelling at each other and it's like Dante's Inferno. What keeps you going is what keeps you going. My first year down there, because of a similar schedule, I started seeing this one guy down at the gym whenever I would go to the gym. And just by convenience sake, proximity, we started talking, and we, I found out that he had already been there 20 years when I just drove up. And our personalities were close enough where we, we formed something of a friendship, acquaintances, and one... Uh, One weekend, somebody on our cell block hanged himself. He died right there. And for a while, that was the talk of the cell block, you know, so-and-so killed himself. And my new friend Lonnie had been there a while. He'd seen this happen quite a few times. And I mentioned it to him, and he said, oh, yeah, the guy didn't have anything to look forward to. And he told me, he said, you have to have hope It can be remodeling an old house, restoring an old marriage. Uh, It doesn't matter what it is, you have to have something to look forward to. And in a very offhanded way, he said, like you, it's your son. And that's kind of surprised me. I didn't realize that I was being that transparent. But he said, without hope, without something to look forward to, no matter what it is, you won't want to get out of bed in the morning. You won't want to live in that place for the rest of your life. You'll either... Hang yourself or cut your own throat or jump off the third tier. And I've seen guys do all three. Wow.
0: Um, So your son would visit, and he was your hope.
1: Yeah. um, It is one of those wonderful, strange, uh, (laughs) thank God moments kind of thing where you have something precious and wonderful that you're projecting onto and you're hoping for. And I, I got to see him about every six months. And then that changed. Um, while that was a wonderful thing, at a certain point, my son reached you know early puberty, early teens, and he's getting tired of coming down there just to see his dad. And the people raising him aren't saying good things about me. And he wants to end the visits. And he does. And um, I made him come down there and tell me that. And... Um, you're scheduled for two-hour visits in Texas, depending on how far away you are. And um, when they came to see me the last time, got right to it, and I asked him if it was our last visit. And he told me it was. And I turned to my sister-in-law, the lady raising him. I told, him, told her to take good care of my son, and I told my son that he always knew where to find me, and I walked out of the visiting room scheduled two-hour visit last about two minutes. And um, just you hear that kind of news, you go through that kind of thing. And I'd been inside a while, and I'd already had something of that shell around me, that tough guy persona. But I still felt as if I'd been kicked in the face. I was numb. I was kind of walking through a haze. I knew the real pain would come later, just like being kicked in the face. But... Um, it's the last time I saw him while I was inside, and I still had another—oh, by then, another twelve or fourteen years to go. So now you,
0: your hope is gone. But you didn't take the well, let's call it the easy way out. You saw guys hanging themselves, jumping off tiers, uh, slitting their own throats. What did What, what happened?
1: Well, I did something that was very uncharacteristic for me at the time. Um, I was completely emotionally, utterly just empty, gutted, wounded, and I didn't know what to do or where to go or which way to turn. And the uncharacteristic thing that I did is I, I cried out to God, you know, help, show me something. I got nothing here.
0: But you weren't a religious guy at the time. No, nah,
1: no. Nah, nah. And um, I, I got nothing. You know, I, I didn't hear this voice from above, you know, Michael gonna rain build a boat it was absolutely nothing and then, you know what in all candor that not getting a response was sort of what i expected because things had been going so badly for so long right why would this i be any yeah, different, yeah. Why, why is it going to change in a, in a heartbeat like this you know just because i'm suffering boo-hoo and then about a week or so later completely normal day nothing special Work, gym, eat, sleep. Um, it's late at night. It's my usual bedtime. <sighs> my cell partner's on the bottom bunk. He's already asleep. Um, I decided to kill the light and turn on the radio. Go up and down the dial a few times and call it a night.
0: With your headphones on?
1: Yeah, with my headphones on. That was that was my routine. I had done this thousands of nights before this. This was just what you do in the penitentiary. And every indicator, appellate and otherwise, is. I was going to be doing this for thousands of more nights. This was my life. And so I did this. At the time, I was in a penitentiary a little south of Houston and I picked up a a classical station out of Houston and there's a, what sounded to me like a a lady playing a harp. You know, (laughs) you might have been a guy, but in my mind, I'm listening to this lady playing a harp and, I don't know about you, but you don't hear too much harp music on, te- uh, on the radio. It's just t- 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 or, <laughs> it's, or, or in prison. It, yeah. <laughs> Especially in prison. And so I listened to it for a moment because that's something of a novelty. Mm-hmm. And now it's comically apropos. But after listening to that for just a moment, with no warning whatsoever, just boom like that, I found myself bathed in golden light inexplicable, wonderful, beautiful, reassuring golden light. And I, I could see nothing but this golden light. And I heard this roaring in my ears, and I felt wonderful. I, I don't know if I was, but I felt like I might have been floating on my bunk. I don't know. Just this wonderful, fantastic, beautiful sensation. And I was sure without having to be ex- having it explained to me, it was self-evident that I was in the presence of God. And, and, and I felt this reassurance and this undeniable limitless focus of love aimed right at me and it was profound and wonderful and and reassuring and is fantastic and it changed everything about me and my perspective and my life and then i heard my alarm going off and i reflexively just turned it off like i did every morning and I sat up in my bunk, and I thought, whoa, I, I, I'm not accustomed to supernatural experiences. I don't have a psych history. I don't, you know, all this stuff. And I'm going, I knew what that was. But like all profound things in your life, I think why is probably the most important question you can ask. And I didn't have a clue. I thought, why did this happen to me? Here I am, some guy just sitting in the penitentiary. And I spent probably months chewing on this, thinking, reading, talking to people, even a little praying about, you know, what's going on here. And the simplest thing is what you might call Occam's razor, that philosophical notion that the simplest explanation until proven wrong is probably the best. And it hit me that the only thing that had happened is I had asked, you know, help, God, please show me something. I got nothing here.
0: You literally had nothing.
1: I had nut, nowhere to go, and he said, "Okay, look." And I knew this is real because it changed me inside. This wasn't some sort of you know intellectual conclusion I reached after certain you know some kind of investigation. This this is something that happened to me, and the reason I know that's real and almost irrational but genuine is that I'm different. After this happened to me, I wanted different things, and I disliked other things. In fact, my life did a 180. The things that I had hated, now I was loving them. The things that I had loved, now I was hating them. And the, the whole the, the, the good, bad, the, the right and wrong dynamic there, the, the conundrum we all wrestle with, was suddenly plain to me. It made sense.
0: In the fall of 2008, a sleepy Seattle suburb was shocked by a crime that no one could have expected. A local football star planned a daring bank robbery, complete with decoys, disguises, and an outlandish getaway plan. He drew the whole thing up, just like a game-winning play on the field, and almost got away with it. The Sneak follows a twisting story of a once-great athlete who committed that crime, and how the robbery forever changed the small town where it occurred. Be sure to subscribe to The Sneak on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. And things did get better. It took a long time from there, right? But then the Innocence Project. Let's talk about the Innocence Project. You are it's, yeah, you're a big fan. You can and, say that, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, 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 well, what
1: happened was early on, you know, DNA was just in its infancy when I got convicted. And as things started evolving, you started seeing these things in the newspaper or on TV. And not only did I write a letter— but my parents did, my aunt did, my sister did. To the Innocence to Project, to the Innocence Project, asking for, you know, hey, look at my case. The Innocence Project is very above board, very transparent.
0: Yeah, they don't. There's no uh, jumping the line, so to speak, no, except no, no, no. for death penalty cases, which of course those have to go to sure. the front because otherwise it's too late, and there's no reversing that. Um, but so, but your case did make it to the top of the to the top of the pile.
1: My case got resolved because in essence of DNA evidence. Um, there were lots of questions. Uh, we talked about that accusation of being the murderous perv with my wife's dead hand. Well, there was a stain on the bed sheet. There are, you know, there was an autopsy. So we start slowly getting incremental successes in court about, okay, well, test that stain, test some of the, uh, the swabs from the autopsy, and, we're, and there's also like there's, there's this bandana that was found behind our house that had human blood on it, but that's as far as they ever went because, you know, 86, 87, there was no advanced uh, scientific way of finding out what was what. Um, so we're starting to get these tests done and the courts being – I don't want to say biased, but, you know, they, the appellate the courts seem to lean towards the prosecution. You, have, you know, you have a conviction here. And you're upsetting the apple cart a bit. A perfectly good conviction. Yes. Why, why yes. Mess it up? Yeah. Yeah. Well, what, what are you trying to do here? You're trying to undermine the process? And so the, these things are being tested, but they're coming back either negative or inconclusive. For instance, like the stain on the sheet that came about with the whole murderous Perv accusation. We'll come to find out that wasn't what they called a neat stain. That was what's in every marriage bed. It's what they called a mixed stain of both. Uh, male and female fluids. It's in every marriage bed. And so, that kind of completely blew that whole pervert aspect of that accusation. But then also the swaps from the autopsy, those came back negative, negative, negative. And so, it's looking like there's less and less to happen here. Things just aren't looking good. In fact, I even sent a letter <clears throat> to the Incidence Project that, you know, I understand you've been moving heaven and earth here, but it looks like we're not getting much results here and if you have to step away I understand because the instance project has limited resources and they can't just throw good money after bad on an unwinnable case and the last piece of evidence that they fought and fought and fought and finally got access to was this blue bandana that was found behind my house that had some uh, blood on it and they finally got it tested and in a almost a uh, supernatural revelation the Uh, The Innocent Project always has to have an attorney of record from the state where they're they're, carrying out this uh, appeal. And this one was John Raley. He was a pro bono lawyer out of Houston. He was a civil attorney. He'd never done a criminal case in his life. But he and Nina Morrison with the Innocent Project did a lot of the underlying work of this. And at the hearing before this blue bandana was tested, John Raley says something. I was was reading in the record about it, that this bandana— he said, we should test it, Your Honor, because it might have the victim's DNA on it. It might have the assailant's DNA on it. It might have the key to, unturn- you know, to turning this whole case around. But unless you test it or allow us to test it, we'll never know. And the Innocence Project is willing to pay for everything, the lab test the transports everything. Just, just let us do it, and we will either confirm your conviction and make it unassailable, or we'll free an innocent man. And in a wildly, weirdly prophetic sort of statement, that's what was said in court, and that's exactly what happened, is that bandana had my wife's DNA on it, and it also had co-mingled DNA with hers on that bandana belonging to a male, not me. And that's wonderful, but that wasn't a get-out-of-jail-free card.
0: But there was another break in the case, which is that the actual killer uh, who, and this is a tragic, another tragic aspect aspect of this, there was a very similar murder uh, nearby in the months
1: after your wife's murder. Yeah, I was inside the penitentiary about 17 months when another murder was committed in Austin. Um, What's bizarre... Is in a very creepy way. The victim of this murder was a woman named Deborah Baker. Like my wife, she was a woman in her early 30s, long dark hair, um, young child, was home alone at the time. Uh, there was no forced entry at either home. Um, they were both beaten to death about the head. And very violent deaths. The houses were ransacked a bit. Some things were taken, some things were left behind. Um, it was very unusual, and this it all had happened on the 13th of the month. And it's um, a lot of coincidences. When the DNA from that bandana was run through CODIS, I actually got news of it on my birthday. Uh, a few months after the DNA was first f- found, and there was a hit on Codis, and this guy named Mark Norwood was on the bandana, and <clears throat> my attorney friend John Rayley's wife, and a uh, an legal a paralegal and RN. Um, had gotten together and they were on the internet and they were looking up coal cases in Austin. And they found this woman's case that paralleled, if not mirrored, my own. And they brought it to the Austin Police Department. And they said, look, we've got this case and they're almost identical. We've got your perpetrator who, in, in one case, we think he's good for the other one. And here's his name, here's his DNA profile, and here's his address. We think you might want to look at him. And they did and they did to their,
0: and, to their great credit.
1: Oh, absolutely. they were very they, this was a different police department than had come after me. And they were gung-ho, and they they matched it up immediately, and within weeks they had, uh, after my release, they arrested this guy, and these two murders were frighteningly similar. And that was the impetus to make the prosecutor who was handling the appellate situation for the county agree to let me out because there was another murder.
0: You're freed uh, out into the sunshine, 24 years and seven days, 24 hours a day. And, and then things take another interesting turn, right? Which is that it's, it's a crazy uh, thing that in this country, uh, no prosecutor has ever gone to jail until your case for a wrongful conviction resulting in incarceration but Ken Anderson was now a judge, right? He had been promoted and that's that's a crazy thing too, right? He won uh, district attorney of the year mm-hmm. uh, after he uh, wrongly convicted you, and uh, wrongfully convicted you, and it was ultimately became ultimately he became a judge. And so the prosecutorial misconduct was uncovered, right? The fact that he had in fact had had access and was aware of these pieces of evidence.
1: After I got out, they had a court of inquiry in Texas to determine whether or not anything had happened. Didn't rely on his memory. Didn't rely on what other people said. There was a record of these things being requested. I mean, when the judge asked a prosecutor straight up, do you have anything else? And they say, no, that's against the law. That violates Brady. And what happened to... Ken Anderson was, here's this sitting judge, and the state bar and the state of Texas, they're coming after him. And at the end of it all, there were, there were some issues with, you know, statute of limitations, some other things, but the bottom line was there was a plea at the end of it all. Um, he was removed from the bench, which was a great thing because he could no longer do, to me, what he did to other folks. He also had his law license taken away. Um, he had, I think it was a $500 fine, 500 hours of community service, and for – what all, all the lawyers are telling me that for the first time that anybody knows of in America, he was – a judge was – well, a prosecutor was sent to jail for misconduct and murder trial. And if you know anybody in the criminal justice world, talk to the lawyers, this sent ripples all across the country. Um, this hadn't happened before. And I was amazed at the um, the way that the other lawyers were – incensed not just the defense bar but other prosecutors hated this too because it's like um, when a, when, a, when there's a bad cop revealed the other cops dislike it because it makes them look bad it makes their job more difficult because when people don't trust the criminal justice system they'll just opt out and so this was a huge deal this 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 judge the sitting judge was held accountable for something he had done you know 25 years ago and took a huge chunk of my life. And the family of the other victim, Deborah Baker, they were heartbroken and incensed at the same time because had this judge, who, who used to be a prosecutor, had he done his job properly, had he not gone after me by suppressing evidence, their mother, wife, sister, that family member, Deborah Baker, might be alive today.
0: She likely would be, and it's, a, it's really a terrible another terrible outcome of this whole situation, this whole crooked situation. There's one more uh, wonderful aspect of this, right, uh, which is that you've gone and, well, aside from being on 60 Minutes and and having a movie made about you and getting remarried and uh, reestablishing uh, your relationship with your son and a book, the book is called? Getting Life. Getting Life. But on top of that, I think the thing that, uh, is, is really going to be a big part of your legacy is the Michael Morton Act. Um, and let's talk about that.
1: This is a, a model law that can and should be used as a template across the country in each state because each state is controlled of its own criminal justice system. The bulk of or the, the the essence of it is that if you're charged with a crime, God forbid, that the state should and is required to turn over to the citizen the evidence they have against you at trial. They they just can't make it up. They have to actually have hard evidence and they have to share it with you just like happens in a civil trial. That the criminal justice side of it should be like the civil justice side of it. And so sharing of files isn't undermining the prosecutorial uh, side. Uh, I've, I've talked to a lot of prosecutors and prosecutor groups since I've been out. This actually protects them from certain appellate review. It makes their cases stronger if they can prove as a as a byproduct of the process that they've been transparent and they've shared everything, that they've been above board and it's been a legitimate prosecution, that they just share their files. The police reports, the lab reports, you know, if if it shows that the time of death was something that would clear the defendant, that should be known. Or if that time of death really nails the guy, that should be shown, too, because we're having public trials. And I did not name it, but the Michael Morton Act in Texas does that. It codifies Brady, and it forces them to to do what's right. I like using the uh, analogy of you're playing cards, and you're playing for money. The prosecutor gets to deal the cards. Well, it used to be that he would also, or she would not just deal you the cards, but look at the cards beforehand and decide whether or not you should get them. And that's not a level playing field. They shouldn't be able to do that. Number one, it's not fair, but it also puts an unfair burden on the prosecutors, that temptation to tilt the field towards them because you know they, they have a job to do and a career to work out and that shouldn't be a burden on them. They should be out there where everybody can see.
0: Don't forget to give us a fantastic review wherever you get your podcast, it really helps. And you know, I'm a proud donor to the Innocence Project and I really hope you'll join me in supporting this very important cause and in so doing, helping to prevent future wrongful convictions. It's easy, go to innocenceproject.org to learn how to donate and get involved. I wanna thank our amazing producers, engineers, and editors, Connor Hall and Kevin Wardus. The music in the show is by three-time Oscar-nominated composer, Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram, at Wrongful Conviction, and on Facebook, at Wrongful Conviction Podcast. Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom is a production of Lava for Good Podcasts in association with Signal Company No. 1 and PRX. I'm excited to tell you about a new serialized podcast called American Jihadi. If you're into investigative journalism, if you're a news junkie, or if you love great nonfiction storytelling, it's a must listen. American Jihadi tells the incredible true story of the unbelievable relationship between journalist Christoph Putzel and Omar Hamami. Throughout the eight-episode series, Kristoff recounts his investigation into the life of Omar, an American-born U.S. citizen who became leader of the Somali Islamist militant group Al-Shabaab, landing him on the list of the FBI's most wanted terrorists. From Omar's hometown in Alabama to war-torn Somalia, Kristoff seeks to get answers. Why would a Southern Baptist turn to terrorism? And how close should a journalist get to his source? Listen to American Jihadi, out now on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen.